Welcome back to How They Train. Today I'm joined by former Australian professional triathlete, Belinda Granger. Belinda won some huge races across her career, like Challenge Roth, and I think she's about a 15-time Ironman distance champion. She's also had about four or five top 10 finishes at the Ironman World Championships in Kona, and more recently has been doing a heap of work behind the scenes, staying involved in uh, professional triathlon. Belinda, it's so good to have you on. You're someone I've always wanted to talk to pretty much since I started this uh, podcast, and and I know you've just got storybooks full of of, of stories from your pro racing and training days. And I've already heard a few of them on this podcast, which I'm going to ask you about. And, and I'm really excited, excited to hear more about. Um, but, but firstly, can you just give everyone a little bit of insight into exactly what your role in the world of triathlon is right now? Oh, where do you want me to start? I mean, firstly, thank you for having me. I, I rarely do a podcast. I, in fact, I can't even remember the last time I gave an interview, but um, very, very happy to be on this podcast. I've heard nothing but really good things. Uh, my role, look, my main role right now, so my full-time role, sorry, that is my dog in the background who is just, uh, you know, I knew this would happen, honestly. She's been quiet the entire bloody day. And as soon as I get on this podcast, she decides to be a pain in the ass. Good start. Anyway, getting getting back there, great, great start. Um, my main role is with Challenge Family uh, as pro-global the official term is global pro liaison for challenge family. So basically what that means in layman's terms is I liaise between the professional athletes around the world and challenge family uh, and all of the races that challenge family put on. Um, And so while athletes can contact me whenever they want about any particular race that we may have, and I will either send them directly to the race director or help them um, or vice versa. If a race director reaches out to me and says, I want Lucy Charles Buckley on my start line, then I will reach out to Lucy's manager and see what is possible. So I'm just a liaise between all of the athletes and the race directors for Challenge Family. So that's my my everyday um, role. And then obviously over the last few years, I've also got into a little bit of commentary just by default. With Challenge Family, first of all, um, Challenge Roth was one of the first that I started doing. And then a lot of the other Challenge Family races wanted me as well. And then more recently, uh, I've moved over to also Clash, which was originally Challenge in America, now Clash Daytona and Clash Miami, which I absolutely love that job. I work with probably the the greatest producer I've ever worked with, um, Keith DeLazandro. He's... uh, obviously works for NASCAR Productions and he is an absolute genius. So I adore that job and everyone I work with there. Um, and then yeah, also with the PTO. And the reason I absolutely love the PTO is because I love everything that they are trying to do in the world of triathlon right now. Honestly, I wish I could turn the clock back 25 years and start as a professional athlete all over again because I think we have, we're going to see the golden era of professional triathlon. Some of the things that the PTO have planned, I just, I, I get, as a 51-year-old, I get so excited for the athletes because it's just, it's a new era in professional triathlon racing. It really is. I can't wait to pick your brains on everything about what you've just said, particularly the the current state of triathlon versus what it was like in your day and and where it's going in the future. But just to just to go back a step before that, so with your role as being the the global pro liaison for Challenge, um, I'm really fascinated about that. And and I, I don't know how much you can and can't tell us, but I would be really fascinated to hear how some of your dealings in that role go. So for example, if if Challenge Roth come or if Challenge Roth's coming up and and the, the crew behind the race or the race director says to you, hey, we really want you to get 
Jan Frodeno, Christian Blumenfeld, Lucy Charles, Daniela Reef at this race. What like what does your what do you actually do? How do those conversations take place? How much back and forth is there? How much do these guys actually get paid to to go to those races? Do they demand more than what you offer? Like, can you just take us inside that? Because I don't think I've ever heard a single story about any of this. Look, it, it all depends on the athlete that we're talking about. Let, let's let's start with Jan Fredino because obviously he's the goat. He is what I call the full package. So really, if you ask me honestly right now what athlete in the world, we're just talking males for now, is the full package. Jan Fredino is the full package. And everyone right now falls underneath Jan Fredino. And I'll tell you why for several reasons. Um, and, and that's no disrespect to Christian Blumenfeld, Gustav Eden. They are incredible athletes. And I know down the track, they will be the full package as well. But the reason Jan Fredino is able to get the biggest deals at the races and why people want him more than any other athlete is because, and you only have to watch him, you only have to stand back and watch him at events and what he brings to an event. He is the penultimate professional. Uh, he's incredibly intelligent. Um, he's a brilliant athlete. He speaks something like five or six different languages. He's incredibly articulate. So it, you just see him in a press conference and I just, honestly, he can do no wrong. He really can't. Even in Roth this year when he had to pull out because his Achilles just wasn't where he wanted it to be and he could he could tell uh, just the mere fact that he came back directly to the finish line, directly to the German television and then to my booth, the English booth, sat down and gave interviews, um, really difficult to take. He's a guy, he's a man that is the greatest in the world. He's had a terrible go of it. He knows that his Achilles isn't great and that the end of his career is, well, could be close. The work, you know what I want to do? I want to crawl away and hide. Uh, and he didn't. He's because he's a professional and he knows that he had a, a lot on the line in this race. He had sponsors. He had the race himself, the race itself. He had all of the German fans, all of the international fans watching him back racing. And he knew that he owed it to them to, to, to come on the live coverage and explain exactly what happened. And, um, you know, Jan and I haven't always seen eye to eye. I, we've had a not that we've had any run-ins, but, you know, sometimes it's I've had to walk away or I've had to, you know, cuss under my breath a little bit because it, he's, as, as a great athlete, he demands a lot. And so he should because at the end of the day, everyone falls underneath him. So if he's not demanding X, Y, Z, then how can the other athletes underneath him demand anything? So it always works like that. So he needs to be at the top of the pops for everyone else to then fall underneath. Um I can't tell you exactly how much he, he demands, but obviously the best athletes in the world, um, particularly when it comes to a race like Challenge Roth, are able to obviously um, get a very, very nice appearance fee plus bonuses, um, plus flights, and then I just keep going plus, plus, plus. Um, but talking specific numbers, obviously I'm not allowed to do that. Uh, but a lot of athletes, particularly with the, the with the race and Roth, they all, all of the top athletes get some sort of appearance fee. But... For races that have a lot of money, for example, the PTO, um, the Canadian Open on the weekend, there was no money given. So, you know, all of the athletes that were invited to race had to find their own way there, pay for their own accommodation, but they're racing for a million dollars. So it's a little bit of give and take. Um, so, yeah, and it gets difficult. And I think you do learn. Uh, I use the PTO ranking a lot to decide what athletes need to go where and who I think might be a good fit for a particular race. Uh, and yeah, obviously the easiest thing for me is when race directors 
sometimes race directors have a little bit of a skewed um, vision on who they want. The amount of times I've been asked for Lucy Charles Barclay and, and uh, Jan Frodeno, my gosh, <laughs> but they're like, oh, we can pay for their accommodation and their, and their travel. I'm like, I'm sorry, but I don't think that's going to quite cut the mustard. I don't think they're going to come for that. But, you know, it's a learning it's a learning experience for everyone. When I first started, I didn't really know um, what to demand. But one thing I will always say to any professional athletes, no matter where they are in the ranking or where they are in the world, it's quite simple. If you do not ask, you will not get. And if you do ask, the worst thing they can say is no. And it's something I say to every single professional athlete up and coming, uh, you, you've got to ask. And uh, if you don't, you'll never know. And I still stand by that to this day. Do you have any like um, stories from your time as being the, the global pro liaison that stand out when you've been organizing a race? Like, have you had any blow ups with athletes where the, the, you know, the race wants this, but the athletes demanding this haven't, haven't aligned and it just hasn't worked? Or yeah, is there any stories that just straight away jump to mind where things haven't sort of played out exactly perfectly? Yeah, look, there's never, you know, I, I always joke with, with the athletes because obviously I think one of the reasons that I love this job and, and, I should go back to how I got this job. And I, I was sitting in Hawaii. I was retiring at the end of the year. Everyone knew it. I'd made it blatantly obvious because I re- was retired. Every race I went to was my last race in Phuket. It was my last race in Germany. It was my last race in the US. And I went on a, I went on a one-year tour. John but Farnham. I was, sit- I was. That's what they call me. They call me that it was my Johnny Farnham tour. And I was sitting in Kona uh, after the race and I sat down with then CEO and owner of Challenge Family, Zibby, um, Zibby Ziplik, and he, and also with another who works for us now again in marketing and media is um, Victoria Murray Orr. And they sat me down and they said, Belinda, look, we really want you to come and work for Challenge Family, but we're just not sure what role, what role are you going to play? And I said, well, you know what, I've been thinking about this and I really, I'm so incredibly passionate about the, the professional athletes and giving each and every one of them a fair go, regardless of where they sit in the world. Um, and I said, so that's what I want to be. And that's where we came up with, okay, let, I'm going to be global pro liaison and I'm going to try and get some great professional athletes to as many of our races as we can. And it's just sort of snowballed from there. Um, and now, of course, I'm part of the core team and I absolutely love my core team for Challenge Family. We have new owners now um, with the, the three men um, in Almere, in Amsterdam, in uh, the Netherlands, still great bosses. And Zibby, of course, is still quite involved with Challenge Family as well. And he sits on our board, but it all started then. And I always joke with the athletes that, you know, if you do the wrong thing by me, I've got a little black book and you'll end up in that black book. <laughs> and I joke about it. And I can, I can honestly say there is no one in my black book. I've had some close calls where I've been wanting to write someone's name in there, but then I've gone, no, no, give them another go. But to be honest, in our sport of triathlon, most of the pros, I would go as far as saying 99.9% of pro athletes that I deal with are beautiful people and I really mean that I know everyone's like oh well this is freaking boring I mean we want some we want some awful athletes and they just don't exist and I think there's been some emails where I've had to say hey listen you're so far off the ball you're not going to get it so you either decide to come and race or find something else so there's been a few of those emails written or there's been emails where I've had to go back and say hey listen you need to go back over your contract you're not living up to what you signed for and we do still see that with some athletes They'll sign a contract, and I swear they haven't read the bloody thing. And then, you know, it might have, okay, we're going to give you X, Y, Z, but in return we want two videos, we want you to, uh, we want some social media shout-outs, 
you know, and there's a list of things. And, you know, you get to a week out from the race and you look and there's like they've done one media, social media post and that's it. So I do have to just friend, remind them in a very friendly way, hey, listen, go back and read your contract and then get back to me and tell me whether, you, you know, you're living up to expectations here because right now you're a little bit behind the ball. So that's about as bad as it gets. Um, I really haven't had any run-ins. I did a long time ago when I first started. I sent, a, sent an email, email out to a female triathlete who had done the wrong thing by me. She, um, she tried to enter one of our races and I didn't find out till afterwards that she was actually on a uh, four-year suspension. Um, and I didn't know about it. It wasn't written anywhere. It was not like it, it was social media news back then. We, it wasn't, and now we know as soon as someone gets done for drugs, it's everyone knows about it. But back then it didn't. And I received an email from someone saying, oh, you do know that this particular person's on a suspension. And I had no idea. And I had to, I had to search uh, Google to find out why. So I must admit, I sent an email to this particular pro athlete and I was very abrupt um, and basically, you know, made a comment that I'll make sure you never race another challenge event again. I was pulled up for that uh, and rightly so, because at the end of the day, it's not up to me that I can't make that decision. And I learned then and there the hard way that everything I write in an email, I have to be 100% sure that I stand by it and that it's going to stick because that's there for life. So I've, I, if anything, I think I've been the one that's had to learn a few hard home truths about what is acceptable and what's not. And uh, since that day, I've never, I've always, whenever I write an email, even if I'm angry with an athlete or with a race director or whoever, I'll, or whoever, I'll always write the email. I'll walk away. I'll come back in a couple of hours' time. I'll read it again. If I'm still not sure, I'll get my husband to read it because he's the most patient, calm, cool, considerate person I know. And he'll say, no, it's, you're going to have to start again. Like, you cannot send that. And um, that's the way I deal with it. So if anything, I think I needed to be harder on myself and what I was able to send out to athletes rather than the other way around. And, and you work for Challenge and like you said, you work for, for Clash now over in America and, and you've done some work with the PTO. Something I'm really um, passionate about at the moment is is Ironman and Pro Triathlon and and I'm I'm not the biggest advocate for, for how Ironman promote the sport or cover the sport on a professional level. Um, so I'm really curious to get your thoughts as someone who doesn't work for that company but works for competing companies, however, was a long-time pro racing uh, mm -hmm. under the Ironman bracket. Uh, your opinion on, on how they're covering the sport, how they're growing the sport, how they um, commentate the sport, the direction of, of professional sport and the importance of it for the company of Ironman, where you think they're doing good, where you think they're doing poorly or could do better and and just where you stand compared to the companies that you work for? Oh, look, it's a really good question and it's an extremely complex one. I've got, and obviously throughout my career, I, I think I won 10 Ironman branded events, um, full distance events. I competed in Kona 10 times and you're right, I finished top 10 five times and I owe a humongous, humongous amount of my career to Ironman. Uh, and there's no doubt about that. It's, it's just the way it was back when I started racing. The only challenge event to exist when I first started racing was, was Challenge Roth. Back in, I raced it for the first time in 2004. Um, 
and th that was the only challenge event that there, that there was. And I certainly couldn't just do one event in a year and make money from that and you know, make a career from it. So I relied heavily on Ironman and they treated me incredibly well. And even after that, I used to do some work for a company called Sunrise Events, which put on Ironman races in the Philippines, uh, Vietnam, Thailand. And that company, Sunrise Events, had some of the most wonderful people running them who truly, truly cared about the pro athletes. And if you speak to any Australians, because it was predominantly Australian athletes that, that were able to do these events, pro athletes, uh, they'll tell, they'll be the first ones to tell you they got treated, we got treated like absolute royalty, put up in five-star accommodation, exceptionally uh, nice packages where you were given appearance fees and bonuses and th the full kit and caboodle, as I say. And that was, an, that was Sunrise Events and they worked, they were, you know, they owned the license to put on Ironman events throughout Asia and they were, they still are to this day an incredible um, team of people. And, you know, there's other races where I've raced. Uh, the team, I used to race Ironman Canada in Penticton and the team there that worked for Ironman were fantastic. Things seemed to change slightly once Ironman started buying back their events. Um, but then again, you know, Ironman here in Australia and I'm very close to everyone that works for Ironman here. It's based in Noosa. So I see these people regularly. Uh, they put on the Noosa Triathlon and they're, an amazing event company with the pro athletes specifically I think definitely over the last few years they've become less important in the Ironman business model there's no doubt about that I mean we can argue that till you know till we're red in the face but there's no doubt that they have become less important than what they were back in the day I know just with the packages that a lot of the athletes are offered now compared to the packages that I would have been offered back in the day, it's chalk and cheese. So definitely Ironman's, um, I'm not sure if I would go as far to say the professional athletes are less important to them. I just think that there are other things now that they're thinking about apart from the professional athletes, which is sad because I still think to this day that the professional athletes are needed for an event. They attract sponsorship. They attract uh, social media. They attract television. Without that, I just, uh, to me, I, I wouldn't put it this way. I, and I, I, this is no disrespect to age group athletes out there because they are the bread and butter of our sport. That I need to make clear. But I would never watch a triathlon if it didn't have a pro field because I, that's what I want to watch. I want to watch the best athletes in the world race against each other. Um, and that's just the way I am even now after being in the sport for 30 years. But, you know, in saying that, your challenge family don't always get it right either. We do definitely genuinely care about uh, the professional athletes. That's why I'm employed on a full-time basis to look after them. Uh, but we don't always get it right either. And we know that. And there's, so I'm not going to sit here and say that we, we are a great company and we do whatever we can. And there are times when we get it wrong. And I think the main thing is admitting when you've made a mistake. And I know that my three bosses are not afraid to admit that they've made a mistake or if something's gone wrong. And I think that's the most important thing that people screw up all companies do, even the best. I mean, even PTO, uh, Clash, we've had instances where things haven't quite gone the way that we wanted them to. And I think it's just admitting that, you know what, we'll do better last time. A great example is Edmonton on the weekend with the women's race. You know, it was the 20-metre draft rule employed and there are a few women that were exploiting that rule slightly. And 
what I loved is that Dylan McNeese, who is the pro liaison, obviously, for PTO, we got together. We knew that there was a situation and we dealt with it. And he dealt with it so well and, and basically said, we cannot have this happen again. And I think we proved that the next day. The men's race was fantastic event. Everyone was keeping their 20 metres. So I think that's the most important thing moving forward. That there is no event company or organisation out there that is absolutely perfect in sport. Uh, I think it's just if you keep making the same mistake over and over and you're not willing to fix it, and I think that's sometimes what we're seeing now with Ironman is that they're just, we're not seeing things getting any better. Whereas I think with the other companies, they're willing to admit they're making a mistake and trying to fix it as best they can. That's probably the best way for me to say it. So with the sustainability of professional triathlon and the future of professional triathlon, again, really curious just to see where you think things are going. In 10, 15, 20 years time, it's very hard to predict this, but if you had to if you had to look into the future, do you still think that Kona is the biggest event in triathlon or by by that time have PTO or or challenge or someone else taken over and and do they have a race that that is bigger that all the professional athletes want to go to that get starts getting treated like the world champs? Does the fact that that Ironman um, the, the Ironman world champs in Kona just barely gets coverage has no real TV coverage? There's not a whole lot of incentive outside of it being historically the biggest race in triathlon um, for professionals to even go there. Really, um, where, where do you think that's gonna gonna go? Do you do you think it'll shift and 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 like Ironman might start doing a little bit more to to try and keep up with companies like Clash or Challenge or, or the PTO? Oh, you know, it's it, it, I always had a love hate relationship with Kona. Obviously, it is the World Championship, so let's be honest. It is an incredibly important race, and there are no, there's not even today there is no professional athlete in the world that's ranked in the top twenty or thirty or forty even that, that that doesn't choose this race to be their main race of the year. And I know after speaking to many of the professional athletes at Edmonton last weekend that that's what they're gearing up for now. Uh, we've still got the Collins Cup coming up in two weeks' time. We've got uh, obviously the the US Open in Dallas. And these are, to me, there are these are at 1.5 million and a million dollar US dollar races. So they're they're big time. I mean, there was never that sort of money in long distance racing back when I was obviously racing as a professional athlete, apart from Kona. But if you ask these athletes, they'll tell you their main race now, Jan Fredino, Christian Blumenfeld, um, Daniela Riff, it's Kona because it is the Ironman World Championships. I'll be very interested to see how it pans out this year just because we obviously have a change with the women racing on Thursday and then the men racing on the weekend how that is going to change things or change the dynamic um, I've only ever raced there when I first started racing there um, which I'm not going to tell you how long ago it was because <laughs> it makes me feel so bloody old it's not funny we all went off on one gun so pro men pro women and all the age group athletes and you know I know it's it's not feasible to do that now and it's not fair to do that now. But I have to tell you, I was, I'm quite happy that I was part of that era because it was epic. And you, I still see the footage from those races back then when everyone went off the one cannon and there's, there's nothing like it. It was unbelievable. And I just, I'm not sure if it's going to lose some of its shine. Everyone's saying, oh, yeah, but we're getting the, the professional women have their own race. But it's on a bloody Thursday. Um, yeah. why, are the, why are the women on the Thursday and the men get the weekend slot? I just agree. It pisses me off a little bit. And okay, that's fine for this year, but next year do we change it around so that the men 
race on the Thursday and the women get the weekend because we now have heard that they're thinking of keeping this um, split race. Are we going to change it round? Are we going to have it in Kona every year? Or is it, you know, there's been all this talk that we're going to change the world championships to different venues. Is it then going to lose a bit of its shine or, or is it going to be better? Because for an athlete like me, Kona never suited me. I did it for 10 years straight and I think my best finish was sixth, but I knew I was never going to get any better than that. So because of that, I never really put my eggs in one basket. I used to, gosh, sometimes I went into Kona. It was my fifth Ironman distance race for the year because I knew that it just wasn't a, it wasn't a bike course that suited my strengths and that was my strength. Um, so why, why save myself for a race that, you know, on the best day maybe I could get fourth or fifth? Um, so maybe it, it's going to be a great thing to have it move to, so that it suits other athletes. But then again, you you talk to all the old school and they're like no if it ever leaves Kona then it's it's not going to be treated the same way and it's you know like St George this year wasn't a true world championship because it wasn't in Kona and I think working on the other side now in the obviously in the events the sports moved on and, and sports have to evolve if we want triathlon to continue to to grow we need to evolve we cannot keep doing the same thing over and over and over and expect the same you know result we want if we want it to evolve get bigger and better then we have to keep coming up with new ways and I think that's what I love most about the PTO and sitting down and talking to everyone in the core team there um, and the vision that they've got for next year if they're going to be giving out 5.5 million US dollars just in their open races in Collins Cup alone let alone the money that they give their end of year bonuses for the ranking I, I mean that sort of money was just unheard of in my time so and this is just the start I mean this is just for next year I, I I honestly as I said I think it's a new golden era for the for for professional triathlon and I I think it's finally finally athletes uh and not just the top echelon of our sport are able going to be able to make a living from this and not scrap from one race to another you know we think about athletes making so much money we know the likes of Jan Fredino, Daniela Riff. Uh, Lucy Charles Barclay are making real money as they should but from majority of the professional athletes racing right now they are scrapping from one race to the next and living off prize money and it's awful to watch because that's not going to produce the best athletes and um, you know I, I think of one athlete in particular and I hope he doesn't mind me naming him but Thomas Davis he's this young athlete from the UK and I, I watch him race, go from race to race to race because he has to, to make a living. And, you know, it gets to that one race, he might get a flat tire. So then he screwed that race. The next race, he crashes. The next race after that, he has another mechanical or, or he has a bad swim. And I can just see him, you know, going from race to race to race. He's an incredibly talented athlete. He deserves better. But if he was able to have the sponsorship that he deserves and the backing behind, he could actually say, you know what, I'm just going to take a break for a month reset, get some good training under my belt, really pick a race that I'm going to work up to and that's the race I'm going to choose. But he doesn't have that luxury because he needs to make money. And this is he's just one out of 50 athletes that are in the same boat. Um, another awesome example is someone like Kyle Smith from New Zealand. When he left New Zealand um, when COVID hit, and, and couldn't get home. He left. He left. To, uh, excuse me. He left to New Zealand with his bike in a in a cardboard box because he didn't have the money to buy a fancy, you know, bike box, and to see him persevere and what he's done, 
And obviously he's landed on his feet by becoming, you know, a training partner of Jan Fredino. He's been there in, able to get good sponsorship. But, you know, everyone only looks at the now. They don't see the, the two years of shitty hard work that this young man has had to do to get to where he is now. And he's only just starting to reap the rewards. So now with the PTO offering real money at, at you know, a series uh, of races, if I was a professional athlete right now, they are the, the races I would be targeting because, you know, as a professional athlete, it's, it's not just about money. I know that, but it's still about making it your profession. And if you do your profession well, you deserve to make money. So I love uh, where we are right at the moment. I get excited when I talk to anyone from the PTO. I know even with Challenge Family, we're wanting to put more races on around the world, as many as we can, so that athletes from every corner of the world can go to our races and at least try and make some prize money. We help them wherever we can. It's one of the things that I really work with with our race directors is, um, you know, at least so an athlete can cover costs um, if we can provide accommodation so that that takes that out of the equation. Um, and that's, that's basically my job is to just try and make it easier for professional athletes to make a living. And with the PTO now on board, it's really exciting time for professional triathlon. That was a really long-winded, <laughs> long-winded way of saying it. So sorry about that. <laughs> no, I actually was going to say like, well, there's a lot to unpack there. But <laughs> oh, I know, but, I know. Oh. That's what happens when you work for too many different people. <laughs> but, you know, the most important thing to take out of that is, honestly, I, I've been in the sport for over 30 years now. And I, this is, I, I kid you not, I love it more now than I did when I first started as this wide-eyed, bushy-tailed age group athlete back in, you know, the late 90s. I think it's grown so much and it will continue to grow so much. And yeah, I'm more excited now than I was when I first started in the sport. Just just to cut back to something you said right at the start of uh, of, of all of that, with the Thursday and Saturday starting times for the, the men and the women. And, and I've thought about this quite a bit because I'm like a pretty big advocate for the female side of triathlon. I just think we're in a really good era. I think it's, it's not quite at the same level as the men, but I think we have some really compelling stories. And, and I, you'll hear me if you go back and listen to the episodes with, with every triathlete that comes on, Belinda, I'm constantly wanting to see all of the best females at the moment go and race an Ironman against each other because we haven't had it yet. And I think it's, yeah. if it could happen, it would be as big a race as, as, as any of the men's races because like Lucy, Agreed. Daniela, Laura, there's, there's heaps of names, but I won't go yeah. back into it. But the, and, and I've thought about this. Does the Thursday make it a smaller deal? Like if you go to the Olympics or the world championships, they do have their marquee events on the weekends generally, but they still have big events on Wednesday nights or Thursday mornings or Friday mornings. Like it's really tricky to know whether it makes any difference, but I, I still don't really think it's necessary to have the races on a different day in the first place. I think split the age group and the pro races, have the age group Agreed. races on the Wednesday or the Thursday, Agreed. give yourself yep. a bit of time, race the men and women on the Saturday together. That's doable. It's not that hard. It's not that complicated. If you have like what the women's field usually has about 30 in it. The men's field has closer to 50. Let's say at most you have a hundred people out on the course. You can keep that separated. Like that's not that hard. It's a hundred no, people over totally an agree. Ironman totally course. Agree. Um, you've, you've, you've hit the nail on the head there. And, and let, at the end of the day, it should be equal numbers. So if there are 50 men racing, there needs to be 50 women racing. And I be. think I agree. I agree with you. Now we have seen the women because back in the day, oh, I'll be honest, and, and obviously I'm a huge advocate for women in sport, in all sports, but back in the day there were definitely 
the professional men's field was far meatier and, and obviously far deeper than the women's field. That, that time's gone. That ship has sailed. We are now equal and we have just as many incredible female athletes doing incredible things as we do males. So first and foremost, equal numbers at a world championship. That should, you know, the fact that I even have to mention it <laughs> really pisses me off because it just shouldn't happen. Equal numbers. Uh, and I agree with you completely. The professional race should be on the same day. So whether that be Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, I don't care what day they choose, but the professional men and women should be going off on the same day. And you're right. There's no reason why it can't be separated uh, for, for numerous reasons. They're all professional athletes. They deserve to go off on the same day. They deserve the same airtime, uh, which, which is much easier to do with television rights, et cetera, et cetera, if it's all on the same day. Splitting the days makes it much more difficult. And everyone's like, oh, but then it makes the race longer. Well, what are we talking here? Yeah. We're not talking that much difference. Um, I, that's one thing I, I really, really love about Bill Christie from Clash Endurance. He is all about the women. I mean, there's been several times when he's given the women the number one bibs. They've been the, they've been the, the, the star event of the day. Um, they've sent the women off last because they, they want the women to get the, the best time. They, he, he, I've sat down and he genuinely says, what do we need to do here? I want, this women's race is going to be better than the men's. I want men's race. I want them to shine. And it's so refreshing to, to because, you know, obviously he, he deals his wife is, you know, owns NASCAR. NASCAR is predominantly a male sport. Um, so to have him with that passion for, for women in sport and wanting to promote them, it's, um, you know, I was pleasantly surprised. And I don't see why we all can't do this. And it's just, you know, it's, I think that's one thing that the PTO are trying to do with these big prize money events is they want the top athletes to race each other on a regular basis because you're right. Now you go to races, you know, you, you might have Ironman Frankfurt on one weekend, Challenge Roth the next weekend, and then another one somewhere else in America, big one in America on the next weekend. It's like, well, of course you're not going to get all the best professional athletes racing. They're going to pick and choose where it's financially more viable for them to race. But by offering true prize purses, which pay, you know, the, everyone in Edmonton got paid, everyone that lined up and finished that race got paid. So that's the only way that you're going to get the best of the best wanting to race each other. I mean, you have athletes like Christian Blumenfelder and Gustav Eden who aren't scared to race anyone. They, they, they make it abundantly clear that they want to race the best. So it's not necessarily just about financial gains for those two men. Uh, they want to race the best as many times as they can. But for a lot of athletes, they don't get that luxury. They need to pick and choose races depending on the financial gains that they're going to be able to make them. And they're hardly going to want to turn up to a race that's offering a $10,000 first place. If they've got, you know, 15 top athletes that on any given day can win that event, it's just not financially viable for them to do it. So, you know, until the PTO came up with this idea of these million, million US dollar prize purses, it's the only way I can see apart from something like a world championship where, where we are actually going to have the best of the best racing. Yeah, like if you had Daniela, Annie Haug, Laura Phillip, Kat Matthews, Lucy Charles Barclay, Taylor Nib, like think about if you had a race with all those girls and you can get them together. Like we haven't seen it, but fuck, it would be as good as any of oh, any race you could would, put on with the men. I honestly, I when we have races like that, like even with Edmonton last weekend, and I think it was abundantly obvious in our commentary that we were just we got overexcited because people <laughs> have to understand. We, we hadn't had this opportunity for freaking hell. How long? We, we, we don't get it. Yeah. yeah, you know, Challenge Roth had a good solid field. 
Um, good, good top on, four, good top five. Yeah, that, good top, exactly. No That's depth. what we're used to. Yeah. But to turn up to Edmonton where you had the top 40, top 50 in the world, plus the wild cards thrown in. Exactly. You know, we lost our shit and we admit it. And we are sorry out there to everyone that, you know, didn't understand that. But when you've been in the sport as long as I have and you've got these diluted fields to finally get a field that was, you know, not 10 deep, not 15 deep, but 40 deep of the best athletes in the world, it was it was hard to keep a lid on it. I'll be honest. I mean, don't worry. I've got it all under control for Collins Cup. It'll be fine. But, you know, it was it was so exciting. We were sitting there in the booth, Vix and I, like shaking each other because it was like, can you freaking believe that we've got this, that this is – it was crazy. So um, I really hope moving forward that we can see this more often that, and that it become more the norm than not. And I think another thing you started to talk about and have talked about lots in, in this chat so far is the money. Um, again, another thing that I've, I've been wanting to talk to yourself and, and a few other people about for a long time is uh, like, I know what it's like to be a young, broke triathlete trying to make it. Like I, that was me in, back in the day and I didn't have parents who paid for a thing. Like I was just broke for two, three years before, before giving it in. Um, you were, you were one of the, the committed ones who pushed through all that, that kind of thing. Um, and so it, it is great to see all of these, these prize purses that just have never been available in the past. The only question I have with it and concern I have with it is the sustainability of building oh. a sport. So if you like look at, I don't know, like any big sport, um, whatever it is, basketball, NFL, in Australia, the AFL, MMA throughout the, the world, like they're all big coverage sports. And do you think that in 20 years time, professional triathlon, will will be a big sport do you think that it's being covered well enough do you think more money should go into like hey how do we get this on more screens so that it's being watched by millions of people you know every every month instead of just um we have like you know five or six events that get watched by i don't know maybe a hundred thousand people at mm. most do, do you think that more money should be going into trying to get tv deals trying to get eyes on sport kids eyes on the sport versus just paying the current crop of pros Oh, look, definitely. But if you look at both companies, Clash Endurance and PTO, I think you can say without a doubt that they are definitely, they've completely changed um, live coverage. Their live coverage has gone next level times, I don't know, 50. I mean, the people, as I said, the, the producer that's in charge of doing all the live coverage for the Clash events is in charge of, of NASCAR. So this is a guy that's... <laughs> And his team, the NASCAR Productions, they are a legit team that know how NASCAR's on television as much as basketball and football is in America. It's huge. Yeah. Uh, similarly, the, the producer for the PTO events, uh, Martin, who's based in the UK, he did Formula One. So we are talking about legitimate producers that know how to put on big sports, uh, do live coverage for big sporting events. So just the fact that the PTO and and um, Bill Christie are, are reaching big to start with, with, with live coverage, tells me they're serious about what the future holds. For it to remain sustainable and, and, and viable, I mean, obviously we need sponsorship and big sponsors involved as well. Mm. The greatest thing about triathlon now um, and has been for quite some time is that, you know, back in the day where the wealthy or the big companies and, and wealthy people in the world were you know, maybe doing running events or playing golf, a lot of them now triathlon is the sport it still is uh, if you look around the world that's what they do um and a lot of the other like ex 
top sports people or even people that still are at top sports people um, use triathlon as a way to stay fit. It's a sport that's just opened up to, to so many people now. People want to do it uh, regardless of whether they want to do it as a professional sport or as a hobby or as a way of keeping fit in the off-season um, or as a way to, as a company, to keep their employees fit and healthy. So I think it's one of these sports that's really opened up to the vast majority of people and it just so happens that a lot of very wealthy and influential people uh, also love the sport of triathlon, so which is a bonus for us. So moving forward, and look, this is probably, I tell you who answers this question better than anyone is uh, Sam Renews from the PTO. I've sat mm, down yeah. many times with him and just listening to him speak about this, I'm like, oh my God, you're so right. And I didn't even think about it from that perspective. Uh, and I know that the PTO moving forward are really trying to mould the sport a little bit like golf um, and tennis. And, you know, there, might, there would have been a time back in the day where golf and tennis was exactly the same, in the same situation as what our sport is in now, where it was, I'm not saying a minority sport, but it certainly didn't have the sponsorship and the backing that it has today uh, to become a mainstream sport, but they had to start somewhere. So I think that's one thing that the PTO are looking, they're looking at these sports these super sports, so to speak, and they're looking, well, how did they get to where they are today? How are they continuing to, in, uh, to, get, to get bigger and more mainstream? And look, maybe we'll never be that big, uh, but I know that these companies are doing everything in their power to at least move in that direction. Yeah, I, it, it, it is really interesting to compare it to those sports because um, I've, I've heard them talk about that same sort of model, And um, but we are the only sport sort of that is going the the different direction from what traditional sports have done. So like take those sports, for example, golf or tennis are perfect examples. The UFCs are probably the best example where they start by paying athletes nothing and the millions go into the buying a TV deal, buying production, yes. but yep. we're yep. flipping it a little bit. So I'm just so curious to see whether that will work. Like more money is going into the athletes than it is the other things. Um, and and it's just it, like, it might work. It might work and you build athletes and you build stories that way. You get people saying, oh shit, I can make a hundred grand from, from these races. I'm going to go start taking that way more seriously. And, and then you get a young generation taking it seriously and then you get more stories. And, and so people get engaged. And I think social media helps that because you can sort of, and, and I, I pretty much know that by talking to everyone I know who follows triathlon, triathlon, most people follow the sport through social media now. So more people know what happens in race results by checking the results on Instagram or going yep, on an yep. athlete's Instagram than actually watching the race. Hey, uh, I spend I spend half my life, life stalking athletes' Instagrams. That's how I do most of my research, <laughs> my homework for work for photometry. You get the best information and the most <laughs> up-to-date information. So I always say part of my job description is, is, is Instagram stalking, which is pretty, pretty funny to think about. But I, I would like to see a, a healthy combination of both where the athletes are being rewarded um, for the hard work. We know that triathlon is an incredibly difficult sport that takes, you know, 25, 30 hours plus a week um, and involves traveling all around the world. And we, we noticed just how difficult it was for athletes from New Zealand and Australia when COVID hit and they couldn't go anywhere. And I just remember my heart went out for, for athletes like Tim Van Berkel, um, uh, Steve McKenna, who were just, you know, obviously with someone like Steve McKenna just starting to make it as a pro and then COVID hit and it basically set him back three years. Yeah. And now, you know, now he's, he's chasing his tail and it's, so 
we need to pay these athletes because for a lot of these athletes, they, when COVID hit and there were no race, they, they had to go back to work. And for a lot of age groupers out there, they might be saying, well, boo-hoo, that's like the rest of us. But these are guys that are, have made a genuine commitment to, be, to, to this being their job and they are good enough. So we're not talking about athletes that just wake up one day and go, oh, you know, stuff it. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be a pro athlete. And it's like, well, sweetheart, sorry, but you really don't have what it takes. We're talking about athletes that do have what it takes um, and are exceptionally good athletes and they deserve to have a fair crack. So I think there is, we do need to have a certain amount of money put aside to allow these athletes to train full time without having any stress about putting food on the table for their family. Um, but then you're right, I, I, at the end of the day, and I don't think, you know, we get a lot of age group athletes complaining about live coverage. Oh, this was, this was crap. And I don't think they understand just how much money is involved Ooh, in yeah. live coverage. Yep. I mean, you add a helicopter to the equation and let's face it, it I love it when we have helicopter coverage because it, it, it's amazing. But we're talking about ridiculous amounts of money. And unless you have very, very wealthy people running the show, um, it's almost impossible. So yeah, you're right. I think we definitely moving forward. I think that is the PTO's aim is the live coverage is definitely going to be one of the most, the TV coverage, one of the most important things moving forward. But I think they also realize that they need to get the athletes secured full-time professional athletes where they are able to work their craft each and every day without worrying about shit. Is this money going to last a month or two months or six months, or am I going to have to find a part-time job? Um, and I, I think, oh, I look, it's different. I'm, I'm difficult. I've been watching the Commonwealth Games, obviously, like everyone else, love them. And, you know, we know some of these athletes that racing, particularly we just saw in the marathon, he's, um, did he, he finished in fourth. Liam Adams, and, yeah. yeah. And we know that he's a, he works as an electrician. Yep. He's probably only able to train. I think he's told us how, how often he's able to train. And that's amazing. But, you know, if you gave this man the opportunity to be a full-time athlete and not have to worry about, you know, being an electrician, um, could you imagine where he could be and what, what he could do on a, on, a, on a world scale? So it's, I think that's what PTO is trying to do right now, just get the athletes up and into a position where they are comfortable uh, so that they can concentrate purely on, on being the best they can be so that we have a world-class field each and every time we race and that's what we want to showcase to the world. I feel like we uh, could just go on forever about this topic. Like I, I, I reckon we've got 90 minutes left in us, but I, <laughs> I want to touch on your career. I was just thinking like, do we just, do I just get you back on another day and we chat about your career? Because this is fascinating, but, but no, I, I think it would be, uh, it wouldn't be doing your career justice to not chat about it a little bit, because I, I wonder if people who follow the sport now, people who have gotten into the sport recently even realize what your career was or who you were before you were the person who is on live coverage in in challenge events or in PTO events and sort of like uh, this bubbly promoter of triathlon in a way like i think that's more what you're seen as these days or or yeah. um but but you were you were incredible as an athlete like like we've I've said in the intro and like you've talked about you won some massive races like you, your performance at Roth was really good um, your, your, some of your Ironman wins, particularly some of your Ironman Canada wins, I thought were really impressive. You had a couple of really impressive days out at Kona. Like you were in an era where you had Chrissy Wellington to try and beat, which sort of ruined races for you a little bit. But, <laughs> she ruined races for quite a few of us. <laughs> yeah. But, but your career. She was ahead of her time. Yeah. Your yeah. career was incredible, Belinda. And so I do want to touch on it a little bit. Um, 
And, and I thought a good place to start was um, I, I want to hear about about your coach Brett Sutton and, and your guys' training relationship, co- coach athlete relationship, because. Uh, Brett's a controversial figure in triathlon. I had him on the show. It was controversial, got some love, got some hate, but he told a really uh, fascinating story about you and and a day that he made you run. I think it was 60, 65, 70 Ks. And, and, oh, and yeah. I just go, I just want to hear this story told through Belinda's lens. Like what was she thinking when her coach said, hey, go and run and just run until I tell you to stop or until you can't run any longer and, and you end up running about 70 Ks. Well, a little bit of history with with Brett and I. I was obviously went through university and became a physical PE teacher, so physical education teacher. And I actually taught Sato's kids um, through, because my first job for the first six years of my 12-year career as a teacher, I actually taught phys ed in a primary school, which is quite unusual because normally phys ed teachers are only high school. But uh, I was able to get a job in primary school and I taught his three kids and all three now are, adults and and have grown up to be the most beautiful adults I was lucky enough to catch up with his eldest Tom at the sub seven sub eight project in Dresden which you know we could talk I could do a talk about that particular project all day long too it was one of the most incredible projects I've ever been part of we've got Um, too much to talk about (laughs) I know know, it's crazy Um, but going back to Brett you know he's he I knew about him as a coach I obviously taught his kids and I was I was talking one day to Hilary Biscay um about and I'd met Hillary through friends. Hillary's from um, from the US, and we were talking about Brett one day. And she goes, "You know what? I'm going to join his squad." I said, "Oh yeah, me too, me too." And we just I was training in San Diego at the time, um, and my husband was coaching me back then. And he look, my husband had done a great job. Uh, I'd won quite a few big races under him, but it had got to a stage where he said, "I." I've got nothing else to give you. I I cannot get you any better than what you are now. So you need to start looking for for someone else as a coach. Um, And she said, I'm going to join Sato. And I said, oh, yeah, yeah, I might do that. Anyway, I went back home thinking, not even thinking about it. Next thing I know, Hillary's over in Switzerland in the little town in Les up in the mountains, and she's training with her. I'm like, shit, she was serious. Mm. So I thought, you know what? You need to pull your finger out of your backside and, and put your money where your mouth is. And so I contacted Sato and said can I join and so both Justin and I jumped on an airplane and the rest is history and I was with Sato for a good four years and I oh you know he I went with I went to him purely to improve my run so my swim and bike were great my run was horrendous and there was nothing Justin could give me to make me a better runner so we thought surely Sato can make me a better runner but what he ended up doing in the long long run was making me an even better cyclist and, and, and a stronger swimmer and I just uh, used to hold on in the run. So I, I'm not sure he improved my run a huge amount, but what he did do was he gave me the confidence because I think the main thing with me and my running was I just, I told myself so many times over and over that I was a shitty runner. So every time I got off the bike, whether I had a 10 minute lead, 20 minute lead, 30 minute lead, it was like, just hang on. Instead of me thinking, you know what? You are the strongest and fittest here. You might not be the fastest runner, you are the strongest, you are the fittest, no one's going to run you down. And that was the mindset that he produced, that he was able to install in me after some crazy sessions like the one you just spoke about. And that one was, you know, we were in a training camp in Phuket, Thailand. Mm. And he said, he got Hillary and I aside one afternoon, he said, girls, you're going to start tomorrow morning, 4.30 in the morning, you're going to run from where we were staying to this reservoir. And this reservoir, I think, was four and a half, five kilometres around in total. 
And he said, you're going to keep running around the reservoir till I come and pick you up. So (laughs) that wasn't unusual. Sato never really told us exactly what we were doing. We always used to turn up in the morning knowing that anything could be on the table for that day. And we were used to it. So we're like, yeah, sure, no problem. So anyway, we took off and it's about 12 kilometres from our accommodation to the reservoir. And we chat, we ran together, Hillary and I chatting and thinking, oh, I wonder how long it's going to do. And, oh, you know, he'll make us run a marathon. But so what? That's not a big deal. We've done that before. And we started off. And, of course, I started getting ahead of Hillary. Um, and I was on my own for the majority of the time. I'm thinking, shit. And I'm looking at, well, this, is, this is before Garmin's. I didn't even have a Garmin back then. So I just had a, a normal Timex watch. And I'm looking, I'm thinking, God, I've been going for hours now. Sun started to come up. And, you know, it's stinking hot in, in um, Thailand. And it's so humid. And we didn't have, we only had the water on our backs that we we, traveled, we had. And I was starting to run. I'm thinking, God, if he doesn't come soon, I'm going to run out of water. And the reservoir there was non-drinking. There's no way you touch that. So anyway, we kept going, we kept going and we're working it out. I'm thinking, all right, I've done four laps. That's that's 54 kilometers now. Surely he's got to come pretty soon. This is getting crazy. So at 65 kilometers, he finally turns up. Actually, it was at 62 he, he turned up. And he said, all right, how many laps have you done? I told him, he goes, oh, good, one more. He goes, I'll run it with you. <laughs> I looked at him. He had Crocs. He had freaking Crocs on. He wouldn't have been said, in good shape either. No, no. <laughs> admittingly, it was a lot better than what he is now. Yeah. But I, I took one look at him. I'm like, you piece of shit. You've just made me run, you know, 62 kilometres and you're going to just rock up and think you're going to run the last lap with me. And I just looked at him and said, like hell you are. And I took off. But you know what? Every time he did something like this, there was a purpose and a reason for it. And just the fact that he that I looked at him after running 62K and said, you're not running with me, buddy. Piss off. And I took off and um and, and finished it. And I it's only now that I can look back and all these little little shitty things that he used to do in training that I thought, what are you doing this for? They're all mental games to make me invincible, so to speak. So that when I turned up on a start line at a race, knowing that I was not the fastest runner, it didn't matter because I was the fittest and hardest person on the start line and I knew that that was going to be the thing that won me the race in the end um the same thing happened when I went to Ironman Canada and had to race against my nemesis Lisa Bentley who Mm. you know Lisa's a great friend of mine but I'll be honest I hated her on a race course because she used to come to Ironman Australia every bloody year and run me down every year and it was to this day the most it's only one of the only regrets I have in the sport is that I never got to win Ironman Australia because I always had uh, either Laurie Bowden, Canadian, Laurie Bowden or Lisa Bentley run me down in the in the dying kilometres of the marathon. And I remember Sato coming to me one day and saying, after being beaten by her for, I think, the 15th, no, not a slight exaggeration, but about the sixth time in Ironman Australia and saying, oh, don't worry, you're going to get a back at a game this year. You're going to do, uh, you're going to go over and do Ironman Canada and Penticton. And I said, no, I'm not. I'm not getting beaten by her twice in one year. That's just, that's bullshit. I'm not doing it. And he said, you see, Belinda, you still haven't learned. You got it all wrong. You know, I'm Man Australia. All the pressure is on you. Everyone's focused on you. You're the, the golden child that everyone wants to win. And you're just not dealing with the pressure. She comes in. She's got nothing to prove, everything to gain. And she's running over the top of you. Shoes on the other foot and pen ticked. And, and, you know, he was bloody right. I remember the first year turning up there, nervous as hell. But, of course, all the focus, all the media was all on Lisa Bentley. She'd been winning it for years. She was the gun. She was the top five in Kona every year. And I was little Miss Nobody that had come over from Switzerland who no one really gave a crap about. And I remember with I, I had a really great swim bike. I loved the bike course over there. 
I think I still hold the bike course record for that particular, uh, for that course, because it's just, it suited me to a T. And I remember with eight kilometres to go on the marathon, Paula Newby Fraser came riding up beside me because she was obviously in charge of the run course and making sure that it was, it was a legit race for all the pros. She goes, oh, we've done the maths, Belinda, and if you keep running the pace you're running right now and Lisa Bentley keeps running the pace she's running, we're going to have a sprint finish on the finish line. And I, you know, this was years ago and I still remember looking at her and just saying to her over my dead fucking body, <laughs> excuse the French, but I was like, it, it is not happening again. And at the end I ended up beating her by quite a few minutes because I think she had so much, when she heard that I had something like a 17-minute lead off the bike, the pressure to run me down as quickly as possible got to her and she cracked because, again, it was the opposite to what it was in Australia. In I probably ran way too quickly the first half of the marathon in Australia because I just wasn't confident that I was going to hold her off instead of just sticking to my own pace and my own race. She did the same thing. She was on the other foot in Penticton. She didn't follow her race plan. She went out planned. She went out too fast and, and she ended up blowing up the last um, final stages of the marathon and, and I beat her. And I think that was a massive turning point in my career, uh, all thanks to Sato having the, the, the foresight to say, you know what, I'm going to show you exactly what pressure does can do to an athlete. Um, so, yeah, I, have, I know Sato is a contra- controversial character and I'm not going to sit here and justify anything. Um, I went to him as a coach to become a better athlete and that's what I got. At the end of the day, he made me a better athlete uh, just as he's continuing to do now. With, I mean, the list is, the list is endless, particularly mm. with professional women on how many women he's made into the athletes that they are. Um, Chrissy Wellington, of course, being the standout. Uh, Danny Reef, another one. And Nicholas Spirig, to me, as I said, Nicholas Spirig is the goat of triathlon and she's Ooh. absolutely incredible. So, and these are all subtle athletes that have done such, inc- like they've raised the bar, they've raised the bar again and again and again in our, in our sport. I uh I had another question I was going to ask based off what you said, but you've just changed what I've got to ask. I'm like, I'm a proper triathlon nut. Like I've like, for example, I first remember you, I'm pretty sure in 2005 when I was literally like 10, I remember you winning challenge Roth. I'm pretty sure it was 2005. And I remember you're telling this Ironman Canada story. And I remember this, like I remember reading about this in um, a triathlon magazine that I bought from the same news agents where I bought the same triathlon magazine every single month. Uh, and I, I could almost tell you the times that you and Lisa like swam, rode and run that day. Like <laughs> That's how much I, I'm pretty sure you oh, ended up beating funny. her by like three minutes that day yeah, in 2006 I, I in Canada. Uh, yeah. Like this, so hearing this story is like so surreal to me. Um, and Lisa Bentley, speaking of her, she might be one of the most underrated triathletes in the history of triathlon. Like no one who follows triathlon in 2022 would know who Lisa is. She's like, She's completely forgotten about. Um, but back yeah. in, back when you were racing, Lisa was a beast. Like she oh. she came second at seventy point three worlds, multiple top fours at Kona, won about ten Ironmans. Like had yep. some battles brilliant, with everyone. Brilliant athlete, yeah. brilliant athlete, and 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 phenomenal runner. And even if you put Lisa back in the in the game today, she would still be one of the greatest marathon runners in yes. the sport. That's how good she was. And you know, I caught up with Lisa last weekend. She's very very heavily involved in the PTO. And, she reminds me in many ways of me. She's in the sport now for the love of it. She loves the sport. She's Even when she retired, she was still involved mm. in triathlon and now, of course, being part of the PTO. And when we talk about the good old days and, and we, we get together, you can see it in her eyes. She still loves the sport as much now as, as, as I do, back as she did back in the day and as much as I do now. And 
it's always we, we laugh and chuckle about the old days because obviously we had this you know when I say love-hate relationship we had so much respect for each other um, on and off the field but you know I'm going to be honest when, when I raised her I hated her because I, I almost had to 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 have any chance of beating her um, but as soon as you get across the finish line of course it's it's done and dusted and you know she's a fantastic woman and such a, an incredible advocate for for triathlon and for women in, in sport always has been um, but yeah we had some we had some pretty incredible battles you know just as I did with um with Nicole later in Roth and oh, yeah. you know it's just it's the same thing I I went there that first year in 2004 really I'll be honest, a little cocky. I thought I was going to win it. I'd looked at, I'd done some research, looked at uh, Nicole Later's results and thought, I can beat her. She's a, she's a good runner, but that's about it. I just need to make sure I get off the bike with a with a, a big lead and, you know, just run strong. And I remember getting off the bike. I think I had a 15-minute lead, which in any other day, anyone would be able to hold off that that sort of a, of a gap. But she ran, I think she ran that day a, a, a two a 251 and she ran me down in the dying stages and it was a great lesson I'm actually so glad that she did because it gave me a good kick up the ass that it's not that easy Belinda and that you don't come to a race and into a country for the first time and think you can dominate and that you need to show a little bit of respect and you know and then of course 2005 I came back and I thought well you know what I just need to have a little bit more of a lead off the bike I need to concentrate on my race and yeah, obviously I won it in 2005, but I don't think I would have um, if I had, if she hadn't have given me the beating that she did in 2004. She just, um, she really put it all into perspective. And I, I had a completely different mindset coming into the race in 2005. Yeah. I'm pretty sure from memory, you had like a 30 minute lead off the bike in 2005, <laughs> didn't you? It was something stupid. It was like. I remember I rode, I just kept saying to myself, Swim as hard as you can, ride like there's no run, and then just hold on for dear life. <laughs> Which was honestly, to be honest, it, my dad made that motto up for me because I, I, my dad's my greatest fan. He, I can go to him and say, "Oh, what time did I run in Penticton in 2007?" And he'll be able to tell me. He's a, he's yeah. a stats man from way back, yeah. um, and he he was a mathematician, engineer, so he, he's just loves numbers. I can't tell you the bloody finish times of any anything. Um, <laughs> I'm useless, but yeah. he'll always tell me all my splits and but his motto for me was swim as hard as you can ride like there's no tomorrow and just hang on for dear life in that run and that's what I used to do every single time in my races until I started with Sato and he sort of really taught me to no no more hanging on in the run believe in yourself um, let them chase you down and let them stuff their race up trying to get you too early and you know I could I could rattle off so many races I was never the greatest athlete on the start line um in probably 15 of the of the races I won, I was probably only on paper the best in maybe three of those. Mm-hmm. I won those because the athletes that should have won didn't stick to their race plan, tried to chase me down too quickly and blew up in the process. So, uh, and, and that's, you know, someone wrote an article on me once about that, that being my strength is that I forced athletes to race out of their comfort zone and then they'd blow up. So that was the, that was the way I used to win them. Um, but it worked. So, you know, and I think that's the most important thing is that finding what your strength is as an athlete, and it might not necessarily be that you're the strong, strongest swim biker or the strongest runner. It's just finding your strength as an athlete and just utilising it to the best of your ability each and every time you race. And so going back to what I was going to say is that you mentioned that you, you think Nicola Spierig's the, the goat. You, you think mm. she's the goat. See, 
I love this. I love me and one of my good mates um, who I trained with for years. One of our favorite topics was who are the top five men and who are the top five women of all time? Like we have debated every man and woman that's done the sport pretty much. And, and we never come to Nicola being number one on our, on our top five women's list. So I'd love to hear your reason why. And I suppose for, for the pure long distance triathlete, the reason she doesn't get on that list is because, you know, she's only done two Ironman distance races. Uh, One of course being the sub eight project. Um, So some may not look at her as, as a complete athlete in comparison to say someone like McKeely Jones who you know was so fantastic over Olympic distance and also you know won Kona won the the Ironman World Championships the reason for me personally I think the most important thing here when we're talking about top five or the goat it's it's a very individual thing and it's what you look at as the full like I'll go back to the full package again Uh, and I look at Nicola and all that she's achieved and all the Olympic uh, events that she's competed at, um, gold medals. Uh, I can't even tell you how many half-distance races she's won as well. A lot, yeah. <laughs> um, a lot. It's ridiculous. Um, and just she's done this on top of three children, a uh, law degree, uh, her own kids' foundation that she's now in partnership with Phoenix as well. And I've seen what she's done for kids in sport in Switzerland. And it'll, it, honestly, it would truly blow your mind. She's the most selfless woman I've ever come across in the sport of triathlon in, in just everything she's done. And look, I know after the weekend in Edmonton, there's been a little bit of controversy over her race there. Um, and, you know, just with, with drafting and, and that group of women, uh, very easy to sit back and watch the live coverage and, and be an armchair expert. Uh, and unless you were there and you saw the dynamic, and again, everyone's human and, and there are, everyone makes mistakes and maybe it was an off day for, for Nicola and, you know, she didn't race the way that we not, are used to seeing her racing. However, I'm not going to let one race define a woman who has done not only done so much in our sport but continues to give back. Uh, so many athletes do so much for the sport of triathlon and then they retire and you never see them again. They're, they're done. But someone like Nicola uh, has been giving back to the sport of triathlon for so many years now. And so many people don't know about it because she doesn't make a big hoo-ha about it because that's not what she's doing it for. I think that's why, to me, I look at Nicola um, and the fact that I got to train with her regularly when I was with Sutto. He often put us together on the bike. So I've spent many, many hours in the saddle with her, got to know her um, as a friend and just get a real inside um, insider's knowledge on on this incredible woman and everything that she's achieved. So for me, it's a personal thing, and, and I think she's the best that we've ever seen. Do I do I th- think that that means that people like Chrissy Wellington, Daniela Riff, Paula Newby Fraser, Heather Fur, uh, Makili Jones, it, these are all women that have that have they've changed our sport, they've they've lifted our sport to the next level, and. We need these people in the sport. But for me personally, Nicholas Spirig for me is is the greatest that we've seen just for all those different reasons that I've um that I've just explained. Yeah, wow. Hard for me to go past Daniela Reef, but you're maybe looking at it from a different, different lens to me. Yes. Uh, I, and maybe I am now because you know I'm not 
it could have been different. I think back when I was an athlete, I probably never would have, never would have said Nicola was the greatest athlete. Yeah. Um, back in my day, I, w- I probably would have said Chrissy. Oh, surely. Definitely. Well, Paul and Newby Fraser first of all. Yeah, Paul. And then what? And then once Chrissy came on the scene, it, you know, Chrissy to me, Chrissy was, and she was, gosh, she changed triathlon for women. She absolutely. She was so many years yep. beyond where we were in the sport in with women um, that she she didn't just you know, take it up a notch. She took it up a notch times 10. It was ridiculous. But what, uh, it was ridiculous. And what she did was force every other female, if they wanted to have a chance of beating her, um, they needed to lift with her. And that's what we saw. And then from there, it just it just had that snowball effect uh, with these athletes doing incredible things with Daniela Riff. And now, you know, the likes of Kat Matthews and what we saw her do in the Sub 8 project, which I still, I look at someone like Kat and, you know, she came from a similar background to me. She was an age group athlete. She wasn't a professional athlete. She didn't get into the sport to become a professional athlete. She started as an age group, but realized that she had a lot of talent. And in a very short period of time, look what we've got now, one of the greatest athletes right now. And I love her attitude. Um, I love that she doesn't come from an elite background. You know, if you compare Kat Matthews to the likes of Gustav Eden and say someone like Christian <laughs> yeah. Blumenfeld, who were handpicked, yeah. they were handpicked as kids. And, and Christian tells a story beautifully about how he was handpicked as a child because they did all this testing on him and they said, you know what, doesn't matter what endurance sport you choose, but whatever one you choose, you are going to be the best in the world at it because you are a freak of nature. And, you know, they chose triathlon and we are seeing the freak of nature in action right now. It wasn't like that for Kat Matthews. And what she pulled off at the, at the Sub 8 project, and that's what I love about this project, regardless of whether you think, it's triathlon or not. That was not what it was ever set up for. It was set up to show what was humanly possible if someone put their mind to it and someone that was willing enough, talented enough, hard enough. Um, and and we, that's what we saw with, with both Joe and Kat Matthews, that they were able to divide the impossible. And to be part of that and to see what they were able to achieve that day, I, I still, it still blows my mind. It really does. And I guess to wrap this up, I, I'm really fascinated to hear about some of your time at Kona. And I'm actually, I just, I think we could talk for three hours. So I really, I'm going to pester you to do another episode with me at some point because I want to hear way more about Not a problem. About I, I love, I love talking about, you know, that, this is the greatest thing about my job is when I commentate, I say I have the greatest job in the world because I get to basically talk about sport, the sport yeah. I love and the athletes that I adore. So it's never a problem for me to talk about triathlon. Yeah, I love your passion because <laughs> I'm extremely passionate about triathlon and, and the sport and I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a proper lover of the sport. Like I know everyone yeah. who's ever done it, I could talk stories for days about people from when I started watching right till now. Like I just, I live for it as well. So I can literally hear the passion in oh. your voice. So I, I, yeah, I fucking love it. Um, yeah. <laughs> with, your, with your career, I sort of – I don't really see you as someone who was defined by the Ironman World Championships, but I think most people would that would that would have been when they were seeing you. Like if you were ever yep. to be watched, it would have been uh, at Kona. Like I remember there was this iconic clip of you uh, at the at the World Championships when Chrissy was off the front and, <laughs> oh, and she yes. she had her flat, and you're like, well, now it's just how like she's still going to beat us. It's just it's just a matter of a matter of time. It's, it's just by just, how much. That's yeah, it's right. just by how much now. Like it won't be twenty minutes. It might just be eight minutes now. Um, and and so I think a lot of people will will remember you from from Kona. Do you look back at Kona? and think I got the most out of myself in those races? Or do you think you never quite delivered what, what you were capable of? 
Yeah, you know what? It's, a, it's such an interesting question. And, and if I really, if I'm really truly honest with myself, I think I was scared shitless to lay it all on the line for that particular race because there was always that thought in the back of my mind, if I save myself for that particular event, uh, what if I fail? And then the whole year's, this is, I mean, whether you think this is right or wrong, but my, my, my mindset was if you fail, then you've wasted a year. And as I said, I don't think the course necessarily suited my strengths. The heat and humidity didn't worry me. I mean, I, most of my Ironman wins were in, in Asia and in, in the heat and humidity. I loved it because, you know, I just trucked along all day, whereas others, you know, the heat killed them and the humidity killed them. So in that respect kind of was fine for me. Uh, but you know, with Kona, majority of the time, unless you are a phenomenal bike rider, and I don't even think even now, Norman Stadler was one that comes to mind that was able to win it with a, with a phenomenal bike ride, but he still had a solid run. I just knew I couldn't run fast enough. I think my fastest run even to this day in Kona was like a, maybe a 320. And that just wasn't going to cut the mustard. That was not going to get you a top three. As I said, I think in the 10 years I was there, I got a sixth, seventh, eighth, ninth and tenth. In, not in that particular order, but that's that's what I got. And most of the time it was either my fourth or fifth long distance race for the year. Uh, so, you know, that's just, if you'd say that to athletes now, they'd just say, well, you know, <laughs> what did you expect? There's no way you were ever going to perform there. And I think I did that because I was, as I said, scared shitless to lay it all on the line. And I also love racing. So, and I loved building up a rapport with race destinations so it got to a point where I just loved going back to the same race year after year because I loved the venue, I loved the people that were there, and I just wasn't willing to give that up for this one particular race. I think if I had been a better runner and I had have truly looked at myself as a professional, as one of the best professionals in the world, then maybe it could have been different. And I know that sounds crazy coming, you know, I had, a, I had something like a 20-year professional career but I also think that I, um, I was able to pick and choose races that suited my strengths. So that's why I was able to win so many races and do so well. And, and, and also, you know, I, I had some great sponsors that were willing to look after me for my entire career. So Kona for me wasn't all the be all. I didn't need to rely on it to, to be seen or recognised because the people that did recognise me, the ones that counted, um, knew how valuable I was to them and you know I had some of the same sponsors for my entire career because um, they saw more than just results uh, you know they saw the full package and uh, yeah that's that, that's the only thing I can think of and you know I still look back and the, I've got two regrets in my entire career two regrets and that's it my very first Ironman that I did was at Foster and Ironman Australia which was when it was back in Foster and I didn't finish my second regret is one of the years in Kona. I knew that my race was going downhill. I was running like rubbish. And I remember my husband being on the course and saying, what are you doing? This is the same as last year. And he said, I'm not hanging around for four hours for you to, to, to feel sorry for yourself out on the marathon. You either pull your finger out and run or you walk off the course. And he was quite serious. And I don't blame him. You know, he, put, he, he gave up his own pro career to look after me. And I walked off the course. Yeah. I took the easy option out. And I oh, just even, you know, I even thinking about it now makes it quite emotional because it was the softest day of my life. And it's something I, I truly regret. And I was just talking to Luke McKenzie about it 
um, on the weekend because, you know, Alistair Brownlee and several of the athletes, you know, we, we saw Alistair Brownlee really suffer. And there was talk about, oh, you know, is this dangerous? Maybe he should walk off the course. And Luke's like, why should he walk off? The, you know, stop saying that. It's, it shouldn't be that easy to just step off a race course of this, you know, this calibre. And he's right. It shouldn't be that easy. You should be giving it everything, everything you can. And I think back to when Jan Frodeno walked the marathon in, in Kona. And, you know, I think that day he earned so much respect from so many athletes, not just age group athletes, professional athletes around the world, because he was having a shitty, shitty day. And the easiest option, and everyone would have understood, would be to walk off the course. And he didn't. So, yeah, Kona... Uh, I, I definitely have a love-hate relationship with it. And as I said, my results there were good enough for, for what I had on the day. My only regret is that one DNF. Um, and, yeah, I'm going to have to take it to my grave. But that's just, it is what it is. But that's, it, it's, at the end, you know, I think as long as we learn from these things and, and take the positives out of them, then they're, they're not really a failure. So that's the way I, I like to look at that, that horrible DNF right now is I learn a lot about myself and what I needed to improve. So as long as you can take positive out of a failure, then it's never really a failure. But but that I remember that year. That was 2009. I remember that clearest day oh, because that was, God, was that awful. was an insane year because Chrissy it Wellington was. went 8.54 and she beat Marinda Carfrey in second by like 20-something minutes. And like people like Ray, Rachel Joyce finished 40 minutes behind <laughs> um, Chrissy insane. Wellington but still finished top five. Oh, like yeah, like yeah. I, I remember thinking like – why is anyone still racing? Like they're so far, like it, it's, uh, like I would it have almost felt, a, like a different race. It was it, almost a different postcode. It really was. Yeah. And if you're having ridiculous. a bad day and you're like, well, I've just finished a bike and I'm a strong cyclist and I'm 40 minutes behind Chrissy Wellington. And now I'm supposed to run. And I know she's going to run 255 at slowest. Like, what am I supposed to do? Like, I, I just remember thinking that day, like Chrissy is just ruining female triathlon for, for everyone else <laughs> racing. She was so well, good. Yeah, she was. And, and it was a real wake-up call for all of us that, you know what, it was about time that we all pulled our fingers out and started, you know, raising the bar. We'd, we'd, just, we'd just taken, I don't like to say the soft option, but we'd rested on our laurels and we were quite happy to have you know, women's triathlon where it was. And, you know, you'd see the men just pushing each other year in, year out. And, and, and because the, there were so many more men racing at the moment and all of them just trying to be competitive. And I think we just got a little bit complacent in the racing and we were quite happy to have us racing around, you know, nine and a half hours and, oh, that's good enough for, you know, 9.45s. And then all of a sudden Chrissy comes along and she's like, stuff that sub nine or you're nothing. And, you know, when I was racing to, to break nine hours was you gave yourself a pat on the back and high fives and you, you were like, you're, you were the shit. Now, if you don't break nine hours, you're nothing. You're not even considered pro athlete. So it's, and that's, that's what we want to see in the sport. That's how, the, that's how professional sports should be. It should be continually, you know, we like, you watch swimming and, and you watch even now in the Com games and you watch the Australian, I love watching Australian swimming, watching the Dolphins because they're not willing to just win gold. They, they go there wanting to break world records and to better their times and to do PBs and, 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 and games records and world, world records. And I just felt like the women didn't really care about that as long as you know that we were playing it too safe that's what we were doing we're in a we're in a phase where we were all happy to just play it safe and Chrissy came along like a whirlwind and just said uh -uh, that's not right and you know what Christian Blumenfeld's doing exactly the same thing now with the men good call Chrissy did with the females and and I love it I love it and you sit down and you speak to Christian and it's just it, it it truly blows your mind because he's just 
whether it's his naivety or or the matter that he's just not going to look at times and what's meant to be right and wrong or what's doable or not doable. He's just him and between him and his coach and Gustav, they're just doing whatever the hell they can, and they are they are not scared of failure, and I think that's important. Um, and they are not scared to give it a good give it a crack. And we saw that on the weekend in Edmonton when, you know, he was he's not scared to run with you know head to head with Gustav Eden. Um, why would he be? He trains with him every day, and yeah, it meant that he got cramps because he he admitted he overbiked in Edmonton. But don't you love that? Don't you love that he's willing to take a chance? And even though it might mean okay, I gave up a chance of winning Edmonton on the weekend. Doesn't matter. I, I can do this because at the end of the day, I want to be I want to be the absolute best, and I want to give myself every chance of winning. I'm not playing it safe. Why the hell would I do that for? And I love that attitude. We saw it with Chrissy, and we're seeing it now again with Christian Blumenfeld, and it's 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 wonderful to watch. Yeah, I, that was back in the days of Kona when there wasn't like I'm pretty sure. Correct me if I'm wrong here. I was pretty young, but there was more than 50 people who started as professionals. Like there wasn't it wasn't capped. I reckon there would have been like 60, 70 pro men starting. Like some of them were really bad. Like there was <laughs> yes, guys doing 14 exactly. hours who were pros, shouldn't but have, shouldn't have really been pros. But, but that's okay. But it's there was okay. some like good. Like I remember, I remember looking back over results not too long ago, and like James Cunnamar came like 54th one year as like the 54th pro and stuff. Like there, there was like recently. Um, deep fields but I'm pretty sure in that 2009 year um, uh, Chrissy came like 20th overall including yeah. the men and there was like but there was like 60 pro men and like she beat like Cam Brown and Maddie White and like big oh, names so she, she's just, incredible just a yeah, beast she was incredible yeah. she was a beast and I, I remember the first year she raced Kona and no one knew who she was of course I'd been training with her all year so I knew exactly who she bloody was um, and I remember we had a big group of women on the bike and everyone was there. Um, um, Sam was there. Sam McGlone was there. Uh, Rebecca Keat was there. Kate Mage was there. This is all, all the women back in the day who on any day could have won Kona. They were all there. And I think there was probably eight or nine of us in the group. And I remember being on the front of the group, dragging this, these girls back into, back into Kona. So we we're on the Queen K, um, Queen K and we probably had around, or probably 40-odd kilometres, 45 kilometres to go. And I don't know how long Chrissy, because Chrissy was a terrible swimmer back then, so she hadn't made the group. And she'd been riding solo all day long and, and she'd, she'd caught our group and was sitting off the back of it. I don't even know how long she'd been there. It was obviously way too slow for her. She came riding up beside me. I was right on the front. And I remember looking so and going, oh, I said, where have you been? She goes, oh, I've been sitting on the back for about, off the back for 10 minutes. She goes, but, and I'm not, I kid you not, this is exactly what she said to me. She, and she wasn't being a smart ass because she, she didn't know how to be one. She was just someone that was fresh in the sport, had no idea. She goes, oh, I've been sitting off the back. She goes, but it's too easy. And I, and I said, well, what are you doing? Don't hang around. Go, go and don't look back. And she goes, oh, will you come with me? I, I promise you. She freaking said this to me. And I said, Chrissy. I can't. I'm on the river. This is it. There is no more. Mm. And I said, no, sir. And then I, you know, I said, no, seriously, Chrissy, get down on your error bars. You go and you do not look back. Anyway, she did. And she didn't go do anything stupid. She didn't take off like a maniac. She just slowly just rode off into the, into the distance. Anyway, there was all this looking around. Um, I could see Rebecca Keat reeled out. Who the hell was that? And uh, someone's going, oh, I don't know. I don't know who she is. Don't worry about it. <laughs> and um, oh, I'm not joking. I, get, I, I think about it now. It just makes me laugh. So good. And I turned, I was on the front. I turned around. I said, well, sorry, girls. If you think the riding's good, you're about to be, you're about to be in shock because her run, because back then it was her run 
is twice as good as her bike. Yeah. And the rest is history. I mean, yeah. I, I still remember the the outfit she wore that day. She had some. Yes, I remember out, it too. Yeah, you know, sp- <laughs> the sponsorship logos logos were hanging off. You know, they weren't yeah. ironed on properly, and they were, you know half of the letters were missing. It was and, all a bit baggy. Oh my god! Yeah. And I just yeah, and that was the start of it. And yeah, she's just incredible. Absolutely phenomenal athlete. Uh, this has been awesome. I could, yeah, I've said it three times now, but I could have this chat literally all day, Belinda. So. <laughs> no, I'm te- no, everyone's like, oh, God, can she shut up already? She never shuts up. <laughs> no, I guarantee that's not what they're thinking. Well, uh, all I can say is my husband's very grateful because he's going to have a nice, quiet and peaceful night because I'm going to be all talked out by the time we finish. Yeah, what's on for tonight? A couple of wines in bed or what, what's, what's your well, Sunday? Well, you know, you know me, I, I must admit when I got back from Edmonton, I, I did have a couple of nights off the uh, after the wine because – um. The after party in Edmonton was quite epic, Steve, as usual. Steve McKenna on our Patreon exclusive episode oh, I, about the Canadian Open it did say you were uh, a little bit drunk, uh, Belinda. Listen, I had a little word to Steve and told him that there's an unwritten rule. There's an unwritten rule in, in the world of triathlon. Actually, it's in the world in all sports. What goes on tour stays on tour. Um, I had to have a word to him, and also Sam Laidlow was another one I had to word to and said, you know, listen, my friends, this is if you're not here, you don't get to know what goes on. But no, it was, it, you know, Edmonton was, it's just so nice now, you know, with COVID, we've had so many restrictions when COVID was on, there were no after parties, there were no real celebrations. And let's face it, these athletes deserve to celebrate when they've done something phenomenal and watching each and every athlete, whether they raced their potential or not, they made history on the weekend in Edmonton with the, with this race and they deserve to celebrate accordingly. And so Nothing makes me happier than to, to, to sit back and just watch all these professional athletes who are all good mates, just having a great time over a couple of wines or beers or whatever it was. And it was just, it was, a, it was lovely. And, and it's something that we've missed because of COVID and it's finally starting to come back. And yeah, they deserve it. So yeah, but, but uh, getting back to that, a couple of nights off the drink and uh, yeah, but Sunday night, of course, one or two glasses of wine never hurt anyone. So <laughs> we'll be back to, back to the normal standard routine back home here. Love it. Awesome, Belinda. Thanks so much for coming on. Uh, no problem. Really value your time. I just, I yeah, I just love your bubbly, contagious love for the sport, and and what comes across as just a, a real, genuine love for life. You're a you're a pleasure to talk to, and and you're a really positive impact on on a sport that I love. So, yeah, keep doing what you're doing. I know, I know you, I know you're never going to stop. But no, yeah, you're, they'll you're have awesome. To, they'll, they'll have to put me down before I give it away. <laughs> oh, I just, I, you know, I do, and I think. You know, we, we, sometimes we complain and, and, you know, there is times when we like, we want things done better and there's no doubt there's still a long way to go in our sport, but I think sometimes it's just so important as professional athletes and age group athletes to just take a step backwards, take a breath and just be appreciative of what I think is one of the greatest sports in the world and just be lucky enough that we're, we're in it, um, that it's available to us all uh, and just, yeah, appreciate it for what it is right now, because it's such an exciting time in the sport of triathlon. Exactly. Hey, uh, I'm gonna. I'm coming up to Noosa for a holiday uh, in the middle of August, so I'm gonna hit you well, up actually, for, for a I've little while. I've actually wine. heard. We're, well, I heard we're gonna be neighbours. Neighbours, yes, that's yes. right. Yes, so that's pretty exciting. I was talking to Jamie L today, and she told me that you are you're minding I'm, their, their dog dogs city. in the house. Yeah, they live just down the road, so come we'll be over. able to go on dog walks together. Yeah, yeah. It. Come over for a wine at Pete's house. Doesn't well, you know, doesn't matter what happens there. No, of course not. No, no. <laughs> oh, he, he, he would. He'd 
he'd be fine with that. Don't worry. Not, but it sounds, it sounds anything that involves wine, you know, I mean. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Hey, yeah. Thanks again, Belinda. Have a good night. Thank you. Um, I'm no, going so to try and get you on for another episode where we can actually talk about your career a little bit more because I think there's probably a thousand more stories for you to tell us. Oh. Well, I'll have a few more after a couple of weeks. I'm heading off over to the Collins Cup. Uh, and then I'll challenge Almira and then uh, also over to Dallas. So I'll have a few more juicy stories up my sleeve after that. Awesome. <laughs> Thanks, Belinda. Have a good one. Thanks, Leda. Thanks, ciao. Bye. Bye.